This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. This chapter is called The Void. Well, let's see, where are we? Okay, we had been at CNET, we left CNET, uh, and then that station, by the way, went south. Uh, it uh, decided to go out of business. CNET was reporting all the technology news of the day, and the technology and news of the day was that every piece of technology was going out of business. And so were they. They were having lots of troubles, and they were paying Clear Channel, which is now iHeartRadio, for the use of that transmitter. Okay? And they decided they didn't want to go that cost anymore or the cost of populating a full radio station. And so after they got rid of me, and a short time after that, they decided to call it quits and inform Clear Channel on a Friday that that was it, they were turning the stick back to them. And on Monday, that channel went back on the air. The person running that station, the general manager, in fact, the general manager of the cluster, and I'll explain a cluster in a little bit, was my old general manager, Ed Cramp. And he gave me a call and he said, I got an emergency here. Uh, I don't have a radio station on Monday and I need somebody to do a morning show over there. Would you mind running in and doing some cobbling together a morning show? And I said, sure, for you, I'd be happy to. He said, now look, I'm not guaranteeing this is going to be a long-time job. This is a temporary measure until we figure out what we're going to do with this radio station. But we got caught with our pants down really fast. And uh, we, um, it's, it's just gotten to the point here where i got to do something. Would you please go in and do the show? So I said, sure, I'll be happy to. Now, the irony of all of this is, now get this, I am going back on the air on a channel where I had just been fired from a couple of months earlier. So that actually the only surviving person of CNET radio, really, on this new channel was me. And I figured I'd go in there and I'd do what I could. And the difference here was from what I had done before, you know, when I was doing the show at Live 105, it basically was a comedy show. It was a show that featured comedians every morning. In addition, there was my own personal commentary, and sometimes that was political, sometimes that was social, sometimes it was sexual. But basically, the show was a pure entertainment show. But what they wanted from me at KNEW, and all I could really do being the only person on the show, mind you, I didn't have the crew that I had at Live 105. Because there I had a crew of maybe upwards to 10 people at one point. Here it was just me, and it was going to be a control board, and that's it. And I could take some phone calls. I think they gave me a phone screener who came in, sat way away from me. I couldn't even really talk to him. And I started to, you know, I was going to do just a, what was essentially a political talk show as opposed to anything else. Your, your traditional uh, Hannity, Limbaugh show, except I couldn't do what they do because I'm to the left. And I, I couldn't wake up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror if I did anything else. But, you know, Ed told me, do what you do. Be Alex Bennett. Go on the air and try your best and just fill the time until we figure out what we're going to do here. And if it turns out to be you, that'll be great. But, you know, I can't guarantee it. So I said, okay. 
And Monday morning, bright and early, 6 o'clock, I pull the switch, and it's Alex Bennett on KNEW. And please give us a call. Now, mind you, I'm going on the air, and nobody even knows I'm there. Okay? To begin with, nobody was listening to CNET radio. I mean, that's why they finally went out of business. I mean, literally, their ratings were so bad that they weren't even in the rating book. You have to be above, I think, a point four in order to get listed, and they didn't get listed. It was just pathetic. So now I'm going on to a station that inherits that, and word has got to get out, oh, hey, Alex Bennett is back on the air, but what they're going to get is not really the Alex Bennett program they're used to. They're getting me doing a one-man show, but I'm, you know, I'm a professional, and I'll do my best. And so I went on the air and started doing this show every morning. Now, let me talk to you for a moment about clusters. Since I had been off the air at Live 105, which was 1997, and now this, I think, was like, oh, getting to be 2002, things had changed a lot in the broadcasting business. I kind of went into that diaspora, you know, where I was uh, doing TV and I was doing CNET radio. What had changed was... The FCC, which once said you could only own one station in a market that's an AM, one station that's an FM, and one TV, and you could only do that in seven markets, simply said you can own almost as many stations as you want to. And so a company like Clear Channel that owned this channel went out and bought like eight stations in the same market. Now, also, let me tell you that the fun thing about radio, you could say this was a fun thing. Some people looked at it as a a horror. But the fact was that when you were one radio station competing against all these other radio stations, you beat each other's brains out. The salesmen were on the street hawking their radio station, trying to beat the other guys out. You were trying to get the top ratings in town. All of a sudden, all of that changes because now when you own eight radio stations, you just want all of them to make a cumulative amount of money, and it's not like the same kind of competitive nature. And what was even more amazing, and something I suddenly hit when I went to this new station, was the fact that it was part of a cluster of eight stations, and they were all in one building. Now, I had never heard of that before. I mean, your station was here, and the next station was across town, and the next station after that was on the other side of town, and never the twain shall meet. And now, even the people you're competing against may be in a studio right next to you. And they had built this studio complex in this building down near the ballpark, and it had like eight radio stations. So here I was doing my show, and then right next door to me was another station doing their show. And by the way, as fate would have it, and this was one of the nicest things about it, the guy running the show on the station next door to me was Jim Lang. Remember Jim Lang from the, what, the uh, the uh, dating game? And uh, yes, he had been the host for years of the dating game. He'd also been a disc jockey in San Francisco for years over at KSFO. But now he was here in this cluster doing a show in the morning. And he was 
right next door to my studio. And uh, every time we go for a break, and we all broke at a certain time because the news went on on the hour, we would meet in the hallways. And I guess in those days, I think you could still smoke in the radio station. And Jim would be out there having a smoke, and I would go out just to hang out. And Jim and I actually got to be friends. We kind of got to be bunk buddies. But this was a really strange feeling because here I am during a break, in the trenches talking to essentially the enemy because in the radio I was brought up in, these were people you competed against and now you no longer competed against them. Now you were next door to them. And in some cases in this clustering system, let's say you had a uh, soul station or an R&B station or whatever you want to call it in those days, and they bought up two R&B stations. They would tell one of them to lose because the other one was the successful one. Now, my thinking was, if you buy two stations that have the same format, let them beat their brains out to try and get the bigger audience because that only makes for a better product. And then they combined sales forces. So the guy who was selling my radio station was selling the radio station next door to me, was selling the radio station next door to that. I could literally walk down the hall and see seven different programs going on, eight different programs going on. A big disc jockey in uh, San Francisco, Don Blue, worked further down the hall from me, and I would say hello to Don in the morning. Anyway, I mean, this went on only for about maybe, I'd say, six weeks. Tell you what happened. Alex goes on the air. Alex is lefty Alex. You know, I can't be right-wing Alex. That's just not in the cards, right? I could not wake up in the morning, as I've said, look myself in the mirror and say, well, I'm going to go in and be a conservative again this morning. And believe me, I've turned down jobs because people said to me, well, you know, or agents uh, later on who would say to me, well, you know, I hear you're very good. Can you be a right winger instead of being a left winger? And that was an anathema to me. I just, I couldn't even understand that. How can you go on the air and purport a certain political line that you take and not believe it. But yet there were a lot of people in those days doing exactly that. They weren't right or left. They just heard that being a right winger was a big deal. So they went and became right wingers. I wouldn't be surprised if you found that some people, like Glenn Beck or whatever back in the day, really had no political inklings at all. But when they heard that the right-wing stuff was good, well, all of a sudden, they became ardent right-wingers. I couldn't do that. I had to be Alex Bennett. And I felt that my politics, I was very, uh, I think, nice with my left-wing politics. I wasn't like a lot of those talk show hosts who were so dogmatic that anybody that disagreed with them, they would put down. In fact, if somebody disagreed with me, I liked to have a nice discussion with them, although it became very difficult to do because by that time, all the people who were doing right-wing radio made it very adversarial. So the people that called me up called me up because they were going to get even with me and they were going to tell me off and whatever. Well, whatever. I'm doing this for about maybe five weeks. And the head of programming for all the Clear Channel stations, Gabe Hobbs, comes to town to figure out what to do with the radio station and so on. Now, let me give you a little background on Gabe Hobbs. Every single Clear Channel station that was talk 
was right-wing talk. And all the hosts on those radio stations were right-wing hosts. Gabe Hobbs is the man who was once quoted as saying, talk radio means conservative talk. He didn't think that talk radio meant a variety of opinions. It was one singular opinion, program after program after program. And one of his arguments was, if you had a country station, would you want to suddenly in the middle of it play Frank Sinatra? Which was one of the stupidest analogies I could ever think of because the better question to ask is, on a country station, would you want to hear the same song over and over and over and over again? And that's essentially what these talk stations were doing. You know, years earlier when I had been doing talk radio, in which I, I did have a political opinion, and that went all the way back to New York, the idea was you had a right-wing guy, you had a left-wing guy, you had a right-wing guy, you had a middle-of-the-road guy. You had all these opinions on one radio station because that's what made it interesting. And sometimes there was an interplay between the different political people as to how they felt about things. I remember myself and Bob Grant uh, when we would be bet between shows or I'd be going to his, my show to his show. I'd appear on his show or he'd appear on my show before we went on and we'd argue for a while. And that was exciting. That made for exciting radio. So this idea that talk radio is now being defined as conservative opinion, just, it made no sense to me as a broadcaster or anybody else. But to Gabe Hobbs, it made a lot of sense. And he, to his credit, he was there for a long time, and his stations did just fine. That was the whole era. See, what happened was, let me explain, is the FCC at one point said if you had to have one opinion on the air, if you had one opinion on the air, you had to have the equal and opposite opinion on the air. Well, in a station where I was on the air giving my leftist opinion, followed by Bob Grant, that was fair and balanced, okay? And it was, I think it was called the Fairness Doctrine, all right? So... It, what happened was, all of a sudden, the FCC threw out the Fairness Doctrine. And I think, if I remember correctly, the Fairness Doctrine was just done away with by the head of the FCC under Reagan. And that was like in uh, 1985. So that all of a sudden, and I, I mentioned this before, people like Rush Limbaugh took advantage of that and realized they could say anything they wanted to, and they didn't have to have an opposing opinion on the program. And so now we were in a day and age where whole radio stations, and in fact, whole companies, ran nothing but right-wing radio stations. So into my environment, where I'm doing my little morning show now to help my ex-boss out, okay, comes Gabe Hobbs the guy who believes that talk radio is uh, right-wing radio. And he listens to me, and the story got back to me that uh, he was listening to me, and uh, he then looked at the person in the room with him and said, he's kidding, right? The next day I was given my walking papers. He didn't want a right-winger on his radio station come hell or high water, and soon that station was populated with nothing but syndicated shows uh, that were right-wing. It, 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 
just completely floored me because all I was doing was what I had always done. And uh, here comes this guy, and he simply says, he's got to be kidding, huh? No, I wasn't kidding, Gabe. I was serious. Well, Gabe Hobbs eventually lost his job, but it was years later, so it wasn't enough to give me schadenfreude. But that's what the, the tempo of the times was back in the day. Now, let me say that when I was leaving CNET, uh, the program director said to me, you know, there's a guy who was in a couple of weeks ago, and he's a big uh, kind of like consultant. His name is Walter Sabo. You really should get a hold of him. And this kind of wandered around in my head and kept floating around in my head. And all of a sudden, here I am. I find myself without a job. Now, let me explain something about me being without a job. All my life, I had left one job to go to another job. Or if I was out of work, it was a very short time before somebody called me and said, would you like to come to work for us? But all of a sudden, there wasn't anything like that. For the first time in my history, I had to go looking for a job. And this was not the easiest thing to do. This is 2002, and at that time, uh, I'm, uh, uh, gee, 62 years old. And I got to go looking for a job. And nobody's calling up to say, hey, will you come to work for us? So I decided to be proactive. I'll tell you how I became proactive. I had had a a very bad depression uh, when my girlfriend and I broke up uh, years earlier. And I had been given a prescription for Zoloft. And uh, Zoloft put me on a very even keel. I, I didn't have depression anymore. But what I found that Zoloft also did to me is it made me very non-aggressive. And you know, when you got to go looking for a job, you got to be aggressive. So I decided to stop the Zoloft. And I started becoming aggressive. I knew I had to find a job, so I was going everywhere I could to find out what the opportunities would be. And I call this guy Walter Sabo. Now, Sabo had been the head of NBC Radio for many years, and now he had struck out on his own and was a consultant. And as fate would have it, he was a consultant to Sirius Satellite Radio. This was this new thing. I think they only had something like uh, 10,000 subscriptions at that point. And I called him up, and I said, what can you do to like help me and he said well you really maybe should look at Sirius satellite radio and I said well you know I don't know you know because at that time it was terrestrial radio was still there but it now had been clusterized the whole business had changed and he said let me see what I can do for you over there and the next thing I know I get a call from a guy by the name of Jay Clark and he's the head of programming at uh, at Sirius and uh, he said, uh, why don't you come on out and talk to us? So I said, okay. He says, uh, we'll, uh, we'll book a flight for you, put you up in a hotel. You and I can have dinner, and we can talk about it. So I uh, get on a plane, and I fly out to New York, and I book myself into the hotel. And then I go and meet Jay for dinner. And Jay Clark, nicest guy in the world. I, I, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of great people in this business from time to time, and, and Jay Clark was one of the truly outstanding people. 
Now, it's funny that Jay Clark had been involved in something which I haven't talked about till this point. And while I was still uh, at Live 105 in San Francisco, I'd been approached by a company in L.A. called Comedy World Network. This was a network that was set up to be a 24-7 network with comedy hosts. They had people like my good friend Bobby Slayton over there doing shows. And at a certain point, they flew me down to L.A., got me to see the operation. They had taken out this uh, whole uh, 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 factory, basically what had been a factory, and turned it into a radio complex. And it was uh, it was kind of amazing. It was still being built and so on, but they were doing these shows 24-7. And uh, they brought me down basically to pick my brain. Because, you know, in San Francisco, I was known as kind of the king of comedy. And so they figured I knew where all the bodies were buried. And they said, well, you know, we should talk about uh, you coming and working for us. And they said, uh, how much would it take? And, you know, sometimes when you're trying to get a job for something you've never done before, your price is much lower than for something you're an expert at. And this is what I was an expert at. And they needed my expertise because they weren't succeeding at what they were doing. And I gave them a quote, I think, of $300,000 a year, which they were telling me how much money they had to spend and how, you know, they're building this big studio and so on and so forth. And somehow, $300,000, they blanched. Well, that was it for that, okay? And I went back to San Francisco, and that was the last time I ever heard of it. Well, the guy who was kind of programming it uh, was a, a executive vice president of the company, was Jay Clark, and I had met him momentarily, okay? And uh, so here I am in New York sitting with Jay Clark. I know that he had to do with, you know, the Comedy Radio Network and uh, Comedy World Radio Network. And I I, uh, uh, didn't want to say anything to him about that because I didn't have much respect for that. And I didn't want to say, oh, and so what about that flop you had a while back called Comedy World Radio Network? He mentioned it a couple of times as his background, but I didn't I didn't pick up on it. I don't think he even remembered meeting me because it was so brief. And we sit there and we start talking and he starts talking about Sirius and what it's all about and, you know, and all that. And he says, but I'm sorry we brought you to New York. And I said, why? He said, well, at this point, we don't have any money. He said, we don't have any money to put out for new talent or hiring new people or whatever. And I went, oh, okay. So I flew back to San Francisco, depressed, disappointed, and going and saying to myself, what the fuck did they fly me out there in the first place for anyway? This was the very beginnings of series. As I say, if they had 10,000 subscribers, that I might be overestimating it. So maybe it was a little too early for that to happen. But it will have its ramifications, as you know, later on. And now I'm looking for jobs everywhere I can possibly find them. Now I find a job. A guy calls me and says, are you available? And I said, yeah, for where? And he said, Sacramento. Well, Sacramento wasn't a big distance for me because I used to go to Sacramento all the time for play TV and I said, uh, sure. He says, we have the CBS station up here. 
He said, what we have on uh, twice a day is we have Opie and Anthony in the morning, and then we repeat them in the afternoon. And what we want to do is we want to take this and, and make it go uh, do away with that second replay of Opie and Anthony and put something in there that will be the same complement to the format that they have. And I said, well, it's kind of what I do because, you know, a lot of people who are in New York stole what I did. And they said, well, uh, you know, we've heard what you do and we've heard what you've done and you would be perfect for us. So I went up to Sacramento and I sat with them. It was a very copacetic meeting and it was a very positive meeting. And at the end of it, they said, uh, let's talk on Monday and maybe you'll come back up and we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll figure out uh, how much you know, we're going to pay you and so on. So on Monday they call me and they say, we want you. So come on up. And we went up and I, I discussed the money with them. And, uh, you know, I had to take a little less than I had been paid at uh, Live 105. But, you know, that was fine. I needed to pay the bills and it wasn't bad money. And uh, I figured I'd get myself an apartment in San, in uh, in. Uh, Sacramento, live there during the week, go back to San Francisco on the weekend. It's only a 90-mile trip, okay? And uh, so we agree on price. We agree on when I would go on and when I was going to start. And now all they had to do was to make up the contracts for me to sign. Well, between the time, <laughs> this is amazing, between the time that I talked to them that last time and the time the contracts were supposed to be signed ready and signed in new york city opie and anthony pulled a really stupid stunt they decided to have this thing about uh, this contest about uh, you win a prize uh, from uh, sam adams beer or whatever uh, for the most unusual place you're having sex. In other words, they wanted people to go out and have sex in unusual places. And uh, the person who was in the most unusual place would win the prize. I don't know how much the prize was. Maybe it was $10,000 or it was a lifetime supply of Sam Adams beer. That doesn't really matter. What happened is this one couple decided to have sex in the pews at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Well, that wasn't bad because you can't stop your audience from doing what they're going to do. What was bad was they had their people there covering it, doing live telephone reports right from uh, the other pews while these people were having sex. And so that made them implicit in the audacity of what was happening. The Catholic Church called for their firing. Sponsors were dropping like crazy. And ultimately, CBS, who owned the station at that time, had to fire them. Well, when they were fired, there was no show to be on the station. And CBS told all the other stations that were carrying Opie and Anthony, if you're trying to do this format, stop it right now. We're going to music because we don't want the trouble. And then I get the call from the station saying, I'm sorry, but they're canceling all that kind of programming. We have the contract right here, but we can't give it to you to sign because we can't hire you. How's that for just, you know, you're begin I'm beginning to get the idea that somewhere I really fucked up with some kind of karmic entity that is now 
fucking my life over. First, I'm fired from a radio station after six weeks because the program director doesn't like liberal left-wing programming. Then I can't get a job at Sirius because, unfortunately, they don't have the wherewithal financially to hire me. And I'm not asking for huge numbers now. I just want to work, right? And now I lose my job, not because of something I did, but because of some stupid stunt that these guys in New York, Opie and Anthony, did. And, you know, it was just, I was at my wit's end, and I didn't know where to go next. And we'll find out where I went next and all the adventures that ensued after that next time. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me, I'm Alex Bennett.